your guests with us. My name is Rob. I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, looking forward to continuing our series in First and Second Timothy this morning. If you have a Bible, you can get to First Timothy. We're going to be finishing up chapter 2 uh, today. We'll also be um, in the Old Testament as well, so if you have notes, go ahead and get ready. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the one that's um, under the seat in front of you and keep that. That can be it's our gift to you. You can write in it, take notes, take it home with you. We'd love for you uh, to keep that. Hey, I want to put, uh, I want to remind you of a few things um, to, for you to mark on your calendar just to be aware of so that you can participate in these things. Uh, and they're in your bulletin as well. Uh, two things in particular. One, uh, the hymn sing. It's coming up, and it is the 17th of September at 6 p.m. If you would like to gather together uh, with the church family and sing songs uh, from the church's past, together and have a night of worship, we invite you 6 p.m. here at the church on the 17th, September 17th. The next thing is we want to throw a really good party for our community. And we do this every year, and every year we try to get better and better at it. We want to invite you and ask you to invite your neighbors, coworkers, friends, come and hang out on our campus the night of October the 1st. We're going to have a bunch of inflatables, more than we've ever had for anything for kids to jump on. We're going to have food trucks out here in the parking lot. Uh, there's going to be music, there's going to be games, all kinds of games. There's a petting zoo and pony rides, the whole deal. Uh, here on our campus, October the 1st. So mark your calendars for Harvest Fest and come and be a part of this. This is a great opportunity for you to engage uh, the neighbors in this community, people that may not step foot on the campus of a church, uh, we're hoping will that evening and get to engage with our church um, as well. So take note on those two things. Uh, last thing, there's a connect card on the seat that's in front of you. We really value that um, because... We don't want church to be a stage where you sit in a seat and you just watch a stage. We want to engage in different areas of life together. And so you can fill that out and let us know where you want to get connected here at New Hope. You can put a prayer request. And every Saturday, our elders, we meet together to pray over those. And we consider it an honor to pray for you and your family. So you can write that. And at the end of the service, there's an offering tray that gets passed. You can put that Connect card in there. Hey, let's pray. And we're going to jump in and continue our series in First Timothy. Father, thank you. Uh, for being here this morning, I pray as we open your word, you would do what only you can do, that you would pierce our hearts and our minds, God, that, uh, and I believe, and so I come to you with expectation and gratitude that we can leave here different than when we arrived, and we offer you this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, one of the scariest days of my entire life was November the 25th, 2009. Let me tell you why. Um, I've got three sons, um, and and. I, I feel like I can handle the, the boys, okay? I, I know you're like, wait till they get older. I get it. I've got a nine-year-old uh, boy, a five-year-old boy, and a six-month-old boy. And I feel like as they're growing up, it's like, hey, walk it off. You're going to be fine. Uh, I can wrestle with them. I know how their brains work, so I can, like, maybe see things before or even after and correct it. But God decided to say, how about this curveball? And on November the 25th, 2009, my daughter, Abby, was born. And my life changed. Yes, she's beautiful, I know. Uh, and everything changed for me. I mean, this little girl has my whole heart. And I am wrapped around her finger. Like, I can discipline the boys, but when Abby gives me these, like, puppy dog eyes or a smile like that, I'm like, ugh, whatever you want. Uh, and it, it's hard, right? Uh, the harder part, too, is uh, thinking about the world that she's going to grow up in. And it's difficult for me because uh, what we're going to talk about today is something that uh, I pray over her. I, I desire deeply from my heart for the truth that we're going to explore today to be a reality for my daughter. Because I believe, I believe with all that I have, and I pray this over her all the time. I call her princess, and I went into her room last night. She was already asleep, uh, so I just prayed over her, and I prayed for God 
uh, to help her realize the potential that he has for her life. And I really mean that. I mean, I just want her to realize fully the potential that the creator of the universe has for her to develop into a leader and a godly woman. And so we're going to talk about that today uh, as we uh, finish up chapter two. One of the things, transparency here, this has been a, a tough one. We've been, uh, our elders have spent a lot of time praying and talking uh, through this passage and through our understanding of what the Bible teaches about what we're going to talk about today. And uh, it would be a lot easier to just skip over this and get to chapter three because it's hard. But we're committed to biblical authority. We're t- committed to, as we preach through passages, when we get to the hard ones, we still got to get through them. And we still got to understand them and submit our lives to them. Uh, and so that's no different today. But before we get to 1 Timothy, I'd like to use a different passage of Scripture to give us some context about what the Bible teaches about the role of women in the kingdom of God. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn to Judges chapter 4. And we're going to look at the life of the only female judge in that book, Deborah. And we're going to glean some truths from God's word that will help us better understand what Paul is communicating in 1 Timothy chapter 2. The book of Judges is all about God's people Israel continually doing what they saw was right in their own eyes, evil and wicked. And God would send a, a leader to his people known as a judge, and he would communicate to the people and bring about a season of peace. But over and over and over again, when that judge would die, the peace would end with their death. And the text would tell us that over and over and over again, the people go back to doing what they thought was right in their own eyes, wicked and evil in the sight of the Lord. So God would send another judge. This cycle repeats itself 12 times in the book of Judges. And there's one judge that stands out, maybe even over and above all of the rest, uh, and her name is Deborah. And we read her story in Judges chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Judges chapter 4. And I'm just going to walk through this story and teach it. And we're going to glean some truths that will help us in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says this. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now Ehud is the judge that came before Deborah. And again, when he dies, the people go back to being wicked. He's the judge who took a sword and shoved it through the belly of an evil king. And you're like, wait a second, what? Yeah, like if you thought the Bible was boring, read Judges chapter 3. Okay, and enjoy it on Labor Day weekend, okay? Verse 2, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned at Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for for 20 years. So this evil king Sisera oppresses God's people with chariots of iron. And you're thinking, okay, what's the big deal? They were like the army tanks of that day. They could plow over all kinds of foot soldiers. Israel had none. Sisera had 900. He oppressed all of these people for 20 years, and the people finally have had enough of doing their own thing, apart from what God would have, and so they cry out to God for help. Verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And so she sits in a leadership position. She's judging over Israel now, which means the people would bring all of their disputes to her, and she would settle their disputes. They would bring her all kinds of problems, from large problems to small problems, everything in between, and she would, in wisdom that was given to her by God, resolve their disputes. Verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, 
Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nestali and from the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you do not go with me, I will not go. So she says, hey, God's already told you to go do this. Like, it's, like you need to go and do this. And then he responds, red flag number one, passive male leadership. And he says, how about you go with me? Because if you don't go with me, I'm not going to go. And then I, it, the text just casually says, and she said, I think she sighed. Ugh, fine. Surely I'll go with you, you loser. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going, I'm telling you, if I go with you, the path that you're choosing to take with your life is not going to end in your own glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Like if you, if you don't go and lead, all the glory from what you're about to do will not be given to you. And then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali and Kadesh. And 10,000 men joined him. So exactly what God told him to do, he went and did because Deborah encouraged him to go do it. And he gathers up these 10,000 soldiers. Verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites and the descendants of Hoab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as Zanamin. Okay, like, no matter how much you study, you can study the original languages. You get up in front of people to read these words, and it's just as bad for me as it is for you when you're by yourself. But I'm not going to skip over them, <laughs> which is near Kadesh. This seems like an irrelevant piece of information. It's as though you're watching a movie, and all this is taking place with Deborah and Brock, and it's like, hey, we're going to pan over here to this boring little segment. Uh, my kids call it the business talk of the movies. Like, this is business. This is boring. And so th it's like this weird part, and then it pans back and picks up the story. But it's not an irrelevant piece of information. You'll see here in a minute. Verse 12. When Sisera told that Barak, the son of uh, Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots. So here come the 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him from uh, Harasheth and the, and the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, now she looks at him and she says, hey, you're not seeing this. Like, the time is now. This is coming together. Get up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Like, you're missing it, dude. It's time to go and lead. And he does. He goes out and he has this battle and he wins. They completely destroy all the people and all the chariots. Skip down to verse 17. But Sisera, the leader of all those chariots, he gets away and he flees away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. And there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her, into her tent, and she covered him with a rug, which I thought was weird. I'd want a blanket. He got a rug. They get into the tent, and so now but that little bit of information that we thought was irrelevant is relevant because it created a peace treaty, enough for him to trust her to come into the tent. Then he says to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave it to him, uh, gave him a drink, and then covered him up again. So she's being real, really, really, really strategic. I want you to drink milk because you're going to get sleepy. Let me tuck you in here. You just rest, you strong warrior, you. Verse 20, and he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent now, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, tell him no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the, the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying there fast asleep from weariness. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, don't tell me the Bible's boring, right? And then this really interesting, I guess, important bit of uh, you know, information. So he died. 
I bet he did, right? Man's taking a nap and gets a tent peg shoved through his temple. I don't think he lived through that one, right? It goes all the way down into the ground. He's dead. And sure enough, what Deborah had said would happen, happened. That even though he defeated all of the, the, the military, their leader who had gotten away, who could have very easily gone and gathered up a whole new army and came back and oppressed the people, because it was important in those days to kill the leader of that military, and instead it was delivered into the hands of a woman. And so he does not receive the glory that he thought he would receive. All because he was passive and all because Deborah told him, you need to go and do this, and he refused to do it. And so we gleaned some information, some, some principles that are really, really important for us to understand going into 1 Timothy 2. So, so this really teaches us something that I want you to keep in mind contextually to help you understand what 1 Timothy 2 teaches us about the role of women in the church. And the first one is this. God gives women the same spiritual gifts that he gives to men. He does. Like, look, ladies, some of you, you need to hear that. Some of you need to hear that. See, Deborah was a prophet. She was a wise and respected and trusted leader in Israel. Some people have suggested that the only reason that she was a leader in Israel is because the culture was so corrupt that there was not a worthy enough man to take the position. There's nothing in this passage that suggests that. As a matter of fact, when Barak wavers from taking the lead of the military, Deborah's already an established leader in Israel. And this leads me uh, to something that our elders have really prayed about and talked about and, and something we want you to understand, and it's this, that women have access to every spiritual gift that men have access to. They do. See, in my experience in the church, I've been a Christian since I was 18 years old, and uh, before that, had no experience in church whatsoever. I get into the church, and my experience in some churches may be similar to yours. It, it seems as though the message was communicated that deep, rich, good theological teaching was for the men, and the women got to pick the paint colors and make sure everything was organized. And that's just a shame. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. I read one Christian author this week who pointed out that anytime you go to a Christian women's conference, they teach out of the book of Ephesians almost all the time. And they usually only hone in on chapter 5, which speaks specifically to the role of the woman in the marriage relationship. And they neglect the rest of the book of Ephesians as though the rest of Ephesians was for the men, but that one little section was for the women to study and understand. I want to be really clear, and so I'm going to put this on the screen. If you're taking notes, you can take a picture of the screen and write this down. The entire Bible, all of the Bible, was written for men and women, and nobody, nobody is more deserving of its depth and beauty over and above anyone else period. There's no room for that in what the scriptures teach. Look, I didn't marry a weak and unintelligent woman. I didn't. My wife, I, I mean this with all sincerity, is so much smarter than me. Like when we were, when we, like we didn't know each other in high school, but when she finished high school and, and I finished high school, her GPA was better than mine. And so then we met in college and I thought, I'm going to finish college with a better GPA than her. I like had a silent challenge. We take this test at the end of Bible college. It's the lamest thing you've ever heard of, and I think they've done away with it. So praise the Lord, they've done away with it. But the, it was called the Bible comprehension test. Like, imagine it. It's, it is what it explains. It's like 500 questions, and you were allowed to miss 20. And like, so you had to take all these in order to graduate. Super lame, right? Yeah, lame. Don't, if you're like, no, that's kind of cool. It wasn't cool. None of it was cool. Not one part of it was cool. None of it. My wife missed three. Like, I thought I was doing awesome because I missed 12. I'm like, I'm and I only missed 12. I did so good. How'd you do? I missed three. I'm like, that's great. You did. All right. 
I finished undergrad and then in, with a lower GPA than her, but we both were going to go to grad school together. And I thought, all right, like when we get to grad school, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do good. I'm going to work really hard. And she got the full scholarship to grad school. I got the one that was like pity, like, oh, you're, we'll give you some too. <laughs> and come on, you can come to school here. Uh, so I barely got in. She got uh, asked to come. And when we got there, she blew me out of the water, man. She's way smarter than me. And she didn't even like go through the whole program. Like she's way smarter. Some of you are like, we've been to your house. She's smarter than you. We've hung out with you. She's way smarter than you. Amen. She is. She, her intellect puts mine to shame. She's not weak either. A couple weeks ago, we were at an elder retreat. So myself and the other elders, we went away for the day to pray and plan for the church. And while we're on this retreat, I get a text from my wife. And it said, hey, call me when you get a chance. She never sends that message unless it's like something she's nervous about talking about. And so I'm thinking, oh, I got to know what's going on. It's going to be a distraction. And so I'm thinking like, hey, I went to the store. And you know that thing we call the budget? Well, it's gone. Uh, I'm thinking something like that. And I'm like, all right, we'll have to talk through that. She calls. She's like, no, hey, it's not as bad as you think. I'm like, oh, that's a great way to lead in. I'm excited to hear what you're going to say now. She's like, well, let, now let me give you some background. When you come to my house, when we go into our house, the garage door, like the big garage door opens. That's how we go into the house every time. Maybe you're like that. And we go into the house, and we have this door that leads into our kitchen from the garage. And it, for two and a half years, it's never latched or shut, which is awesome when you're carrying things. Right? You just give it a little kick, and the door opens, and you're in the house. No big deal. Well, on this particular day, uh, I have four kids. I've got a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a six-month-old. My wife lays the six-month-old down in the pack-and-play to sleep. And she walks out into the garage to help the older three do some craft thing that they're doing. And so they're in the garage, and she turns around to go check on Noah, and for the first time in two and a half years, the door latched and locked shut. And she's given it everything she's got. The door won't open. I'm telling you, two and a half years, this thing has never latched. So she's like, okay, my baby's in the house, all right. So she goes around to the back door uh, in the back of the house, deadbolt locked. She's like, all right, the front door, the thing we never use, maybe it's unlocked. And so we went to the front door, deadbolt locked. She's like, I can put a kid through a window. She looks... Every window, locked. And then she goes back in, and she tells me that she thought she heard the baby crying. And so I don't know if you know much about nature, but when mama bear kicks in, guys, we don't stand a chance, right? And so my wife proceeded to kick the garage door in to get to the baby. Here's a picture of the door. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, she kicked it in, and she sends me this picture. She's like, it's not as bad as you think. I think we can fix it. <laughs> like, I think we can pay someone to fix that. Uh, and, it, and so she gets into the house, and sure enough, the baby's sleeping peacefully. He wasn't crying. Uh, and so now we have this damaged door. And I said, hey, first question, I said, hey, are you okay? I mean, because that looked like it probably hurt. And her response was, I'm okay, but I will tell you I carry a lot more authority with our kids now because they just watched mommy <laughs> kick the door in, okay? Genuinely, that was her response. Look, I'd, in all seriousness, all seriousness, I did not marry a weak, unintelligent woman. I married a strong woman, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I married a rock star, okay? And she has gifts that the Lord has given to her. And those gifts are not simply to do what I want. Those gifts are not simply to meet my needs. God has given her specific gifts that he needs her to use to advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That being said... Brings us to the second thing we learn from the story of Deborah. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God establishes roles that he wants only men to fulfill and roles that he wants only women to fulfill. See, in the Old Testament, 
women could not serve as a priest. That's a role that God reserved only for men in the Old Testament. You read through your Old Testament. It's something he asked just the men to do and lead. And you pick up on some interesting things in the story of Deborah. Do you remember when Barak says, hey, come, and if you come with me, I'll go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Well, then she goes with him, but she only goes so far. She pauses and says, I'm not going to go fight the, the war for you. Get up and go. And she spurs him on to go and do it, but she won't go fight at the battle. The other thing you pick up in the story of Deborah is this. She's introduced to us as Deborah, the, the, wife, of, the wife of Labadoth. It's the only time he appears in the story, her husband. And you're thinking, okay, why does the author think it important every time a female leader in the Old Testament or the Bible is introduced that the husband is also introduced? It's because of this. While God gave her incredible abilities and leadership and talents and skills, Deborah viewed herself as someone who was using those talents while also being a part of a home that was led by her husband. Even in her role as a prophet and leader, she's a part of a home where her husband leads because that's the way that God designed it to be. He designed the man to lead in the home. But here's the thing. So many guys have failed to do this well because they think by leading, the woman doesn't have a voice. Here's what we learned from Deborah. Lapidoth was a hero because he led his home in such a way that it elevated, enriched, and enhanced the talents and skills that God had given to his wife to lead. And she was able to hone those talents and skills and abilities and gifts at the same time honoring God's created order for leadership in the home. See, when it's done well, it's beautiful. This leads us into 1 Timothy chapter 2, the second part of this uh, chapter where Paul begins in detail to describe what life in the church should look like. Now, we started very quickly in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the foundation of church, this is us, this is the story of us as a church, is truth, God's truth. Here's why that's important, friends. Stay with me. Stay with me. We start with truth because our perspective, this was week two, is changed by that truth. We begin to see the world different than just simply our own perspectives. When our perspective changes, we become people of prayer, seeking God's will, not our own, in the fulfillment of the life of the church, which leads us to the second part of chapter two today. We start with truth, God's truth, not ours. It changes our perspective on life. We submit to that perspective because we see that it's true, and we develop a relationship through prayer with our Heavenly Father. And now Paul begins to get specific about the role, the roles within the church. Uh, this week we talk about the role of women in the church, and next week we talk about the role of the elder in the church. Um, and David will walk us through that next Sunday morning. So chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Paul says this, Likewise, so in addition to being people of prayer, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. You see, what took place in Ephesus, there was one of the seven wonders of the world in this city. It was called the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. This was a temple to a false god, a god that didn't really exist, but the people created. You'd go into this temple, and in order to worship this goddess Diana, you would engage in sexual practices. And in an effort to enhance that, you'd have women in the temple that served as temple prostitutes. They would dress in inappropriate ways and in inappropriate manners to entice the men to do things that God did not want them to do. Culturally speaking, this would spread out and leak into the culture. Paul says, for a woman whose truth is founded upon the word of God, whose perspective has been shaped and molded by that truth, who has a relationship with the Lord in prayer for a godly woman, she must pursue modesty 
not this type of living. See, Paul is saying that the way a woman dresses says a lot about her desires. Think about this. If she desires to be noticed for the wrong reasons, she's probably going to dress accordingly. Yet, a woman with self-control, and I love that Paul included self-control in the description of this pursuit. A woman with self-control, a woman who wants God to be noticed in her, not her to be noticed, but she wants when people see her, for them to see their, her Heavenly Father, God, she will dress with modesty, pointing people to God. One pastor said it this way, your clothing should frame your face, your face where the glory of God shines forth and nowhere else. See, Paul goes on to make comments about what he considers immodest behavior, the braided hair, the gold, and you're like, what is that all about? In those days, when you would braid your hair and you would dress the way that he describes in this passage, you were relating to the people from that temple. And you were pursuing the things that the culture in that day, that does not mean you can't braid your hair. Some of you are like, pull the braid out. Pull. That's, not, that's not what we're saying. That, it's not the same. He is saying, guard yourself with modesty. Pursue modesty. Now, let me tell you this. As a dad, like some of you are like, you can't tell us the, the way we dress. Like, look, look, hold on. As a dad, this is about the motives and the condition of the heart. I want my daughter to understand this with all of my heart. When I look at Abby, I want her to understand that the character that's developed in her is far more important than what she puts on the outside. Who she's becoming, who the Lord is developing her into, is one of the most important things she will ever give her time and attention to. That's what Paul's saying here. Godly women, godly women are concerned with the condition of their heart, and it's reflected in what they present to other people. He continues, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather that she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Question, aren't you glad I'm the one that has to teach this this morning? You're like, yes, we are. It's all on you, dude. We'll just listen. Anyone want to take a stab at it? Super hard. You read that, and it's like, man, that sounds so harsh. Like, what in the world is going on here, Paul? This does not sound healthy at all. And I'll tell you what, there's been a lot of people, I'm going to be really bold in saying this, a, real, a lot of really ill-equipped preachers that have abused this passage and brought out of it what God never intended there to be. With humility, I want to bring out a few things that Paul, I think, is talking about when he says certain key phrases that I just read that are probably triggers for you, maybe even pain points for some of you. Maybe they hurt because people have abused this passage and oppressed you and pushed you down because of it. And shame on them. Here's what I think Paul's really getting at. When Paul says, learn quietly with all submissiveness, I don't think he means that women can never talk in church. Why do I say that? Because there's this thing called the rest of the Bible. Okay, in 1, Timothy chapter th- or 1 Peter chapter 3, all throughout the rest of 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 Corinthians, all over the place, the Apostle Paul brings out that women have gifts, women have gifts, and they're to use these gifts and to exercise these gifts to edify and encourage the church. He nowhere ever says that women can't talk at all. I think if you place this within the context, what we talked about last week, what we talked about last week was this. We pray for our government. Why? So that we might live quiet and tranquil lives advancing the kingdom of God. Place it within the context. 
The context here suggests that women, too, are to live quiet lives, advancing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That should be their goal, that they're not trying to draw attention to themselves. They're not trying to make it all about them. Instead, they're quietly, under the submission of their elders, the elders in the church, they are pursuing the kingdom of God. Look, Paul says, the next very thing he says that gives us an idea of what submissiveness indicates is this. He says, they're not to teach or have authority over man. This was a specific, please write this down, this was a specific kind of teaching. We know that because in the original letter, there were no chapter and verse divisions. We added that. This was a single letter to be read completely. Therefore, what he begins to talk about in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the role of the elder, that's where he gets specific in the teaching that he's referencing in chapter 2. So he says, a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over man in the capacity of pastor elder. That's what he's saying. He is not saying that a woman can never teach. He's not saying that a woman can never uh, get up in front of people and explain things. And she cannot do so in the capacity of elder and pastor. The gathered church is what's in mind here. When the church gathers together, when people do what I'm doing right now, or what we do as a group of elders where we talk about the doctrine of the church, what the church believes, where the church is headed, they say in that capacity, Paul is saying, that one role, pastor, elder, overseer, preacher, however you want to interpret that, the capacity that I'm acting in right now is reserved for a man. That's what, that's what he's saying. When he uses the verb to teach or the noun teaching, he's almost always referring to the core or foundational truth of Christian doctrine. Okay, Who sets the, the stage for what the church believes the Bible is teaching? And Paul says this and only this are reserved for the, for the man. That, that's it. Underneath that, underneath the submission to that, that eldership, everything is open. And I don't know what your experience has been, but a lot of people have taken that and said, no, nothing's open now. And that's a shame. I like the way Dan Doriani says it. He says this, the point is not that men must do all of the teaching or that women must never teach men anything. That's not the point. Rather, Paul says that men who are tested, so this one small representation, this one small group of men, are tested, approved, and consecrated by the church, they must preach, teach, and defend the gospel of Christ. Now, admittedly, that's really hard to hear. And some have difficulty with it, saying, okay, so only men can serve, so God had one role in the Old Testament priest, only one role in the New Testament elder pastor that was reserved for men only. But how do we know, Rob, that this isn't cultural too? You said the, the braids and the rings and all that was cultural. What if that's just cultural too and it's not the same now as it was back then. We know that because Paul ties it to the created order. Paul says that this is the way God designed people to be, and he ties it all the way back to Adam and Eve. He says, when God designed the world, it was created to go this way, and the woman was deceived, and when that deception took place, it subverted God's good design. Guys, don't think you're off the hook either. Like, hey, women, women were just e more easily duped, and they're just lesser thinking, and they're just not capable. Here's the deal. If you are a guy at any point where you think that women are less intelligent or less capable, the moment you think that, you've proved it wrong. I just want you to know that. Like the moment you believe that, you've proved that you're the lesser, that you're the one that's not really that intelligent. Okay? I thought maybe the ladies would say amen, but maybe not. All right. There you go. <laughs> you cannot believe. That's not what the passage is teaching. What, it, what he's talking about in Genesis, he is saying, God had an order, a created order for things to take place, and sin entered the world and completely ruined it. Completely ruined it. 
Now, Paul closes out with verse 15, and I was like, man, it'd be good if I got him distracted and just avoided that one because it's not easy. And he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I want to summarize that verse for you with three words, okay? Three words to help you understand what Paul was saying in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. You ready? You ready? Only God knows. Good? No? Not good? <laughs> Only God knows. There have been people who have taken this, and there's a thousand different interpretations, and I've read a bunch of them. I think there's two that could fit, okay? I think there are two possible interpretations of verse 15 that might fit. The first is this. It's tied to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and the reason is because he ties it to the created order. In Genesis 3, it says that while sin entered the world through the woman, so also the Savior will come from her. Genesis 3.15 says that the Savior will come from her and he will crush the head of the serpent, which means it, what Paul could be saying here is that even though sin entered the world through the woman, the Savior was coming through the woman, so God can right every wrong. John Stott, a really respected theologian, holds to this view and says that despite sin entering the world, we should all remember that no greater honor has been given to any human like that given to Mary. If she had not given birth to the Savior, we would all be doomed. May we never forget what we owe to women. And I think that fits. In addition to that, I think another uh, interpretation could be that the significance of women nurturing children and focusing on the health of the home is a gift uniquely given to women. It's, a it's something men are incapable of doing the way that a woman can do that. And so to bring her focus and attention into the health and vitality of the home. See, Paul's emphasizing this unique and incredible gift that only women have in being able to give birth. He is not saying that women will only be saved through giving birth. He can't be saying that because of everything else he said in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he encourages some women to stay single. He couldn't do that and also be saying the only way a woman could be saved is to have children. That's not what he's saying. In addition to that, if a woman had to have a child to be saved, she would be doing something to earn her salvation, and the very nature of the gospel goes up against that. You cannot earn your salvation. He's not saying that. So I think it's either that sin enters the world through Eve, but also the Savior, or this unique, incredible gift that women have in giving birth and nurturing the home. To summarize all of what I'm saying, I, there's a, a preacher that, man, he just nailed it. So I don't want to recreate it. His name's Tim Keller, and he says this about 1 Timothy chapter 2. He said, God forbids one, just one kind of role in the church to women, just like he did in Israel. We must not jump from that to forbidding all teaching that ta and tasks to women, and we shouldn't assert all sorts of specific tasks are off limits to women, like working outside of the home, teaching males over the age of 12, speaking from the front of the church services. It's better just to say it this way. Everything a man who is not an elder can do, a woman can do also in the church. And some ladies just really need to hear that. Because you have gifts and you have abilities. And so our position as a church is this. We will never affirm what the Bible prohibits. And at the same time, we will never prohibit what the Bible clearly affirms and allows. The Bible clearly affirms the gifting of women in every way except preacher, elder. And we need to do a better job of honing those gifts. And so three takeaways. Number one, men and women are equals without being equivalents. The Bible talks about equality with gifting and, 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 gifting and position and all kinds of favor with God. And yet there is a distinctive difference with the roles God has asked us to play in both the family and the church. Women are called and expected to lead in many ways under the leadership of the elders of the church. 
Here's the thing I want you to hear, ladies. Maybe you've not heard this from a church, and you need to hear this. God has given you gifts, and he wants you to thrive in ministry. He wants to use you in helping advance his kingdom, and he has gifted you accordingly. Women can teach in seminary classrooms and small groups and and, and prayer groups and all kinds of environments and use their gifts in incredible ways under, and at the same time, they can honor the created order by God in letting the elders lead the church. But takeaway number two, we need more Deborahs in our homes and in our churches. I've started to pray over my daughter that she would be a Deborah, that she would raise up to be a leader that God would hone the gifts that he's given to her. He would fan into flame the gifts that he has placed inside of her, that she might have an incredible ministry with the Lord. Ladies, God has called you to serve him, and God has placed a calling and a gifting in your life. You have incredible gifts that God wants you to use. You can accomplish all of this, all of it, while at the same time honoring God's designed order for creation and leadership. Last, in case you thought you'd get off the hook, we need more men to lead well in our homes and in our churches. I've seen too many men lead like tyrants. And it's got to end. Too many men distort scripture and this concept of submissiveness that somehow their family's purpose is to meet their needs and make them feel better. And there's nowhere in the Bible where you're called to be the king over your home and everybody else is supposed to simply serve you and make you happy. And shame on us, shame on anyone who has distorted the scriptures to say that. Look, the Bible clearly tells men in the home and in the church to lead like Jesus. And here's what I want you to know about the leadership of Jesus. Jesus always, always led in a self-sacrificing manner and never led. Read it. Read the Gospels. He never led in a self-satisfying or self-gratifying manner. Men, please hear this from the bottom of my heart. You lead well by sacrificially serving well. And when that happens, God's created order creates a harmony and a unity unlike anything the world has ever seen where God gifts women and men alike to fulfill his purposes in glad submission to the select few he's called to be elders and overseers of the church. Friends, this is a culture-changing concept. When we lead well in our homes and we pour into the giftedness and the empowering of our wives to fulfill their ministry callings, we're simultaneously doing the same in our own. My prayer for our church is that we would be filled with men and women, gifted by God to fulfill His purposes in the world, that we would all, men and women alike, be disciples who make disciples honoring his created order for leadership in the family and the home, fulfilling his purposes on earth as it is in heaven. And the question for you is, will you join us?